Father, in the quiet of this place of worship, I pray that your Holy Spirit that dwells in each of us who believe, I pray you draw us closer to you. That not only would you get our minds to focus on you, but that you would peel away any barriers that we've allowed to be built up over the years. You love us, Lord, and you have demonstrated that in so many ways, most particularly through the giving of your own Son, that he might die, that we might live, that he might live again. Obviously, Father, you want us to come close. You want us to learn to depend on you and not to depend on ourselves as the hymn reminds us, because we'll fail ourselves every time. You have a whole other way for us to live our lives, another way to walk and talk and feel and think and to be. And one day at a time, Lord, you want us to take Jesus on. You want us to be conformed to his image, That when we get to the end of this life, whenever that may be, that we'd look more like Jesus than we did when we began. And in that we would find peace and happiness that otherwise would elude us during our life. What a God that would have such a plan for his creation a people who've turned their backs and walked away, a people who've demanded their own ways, and still you love us. Still you persevere with us. A God who's prepared, if we'll just call out and ask, to forgive every sin of our life. Lord, some of the sins that we've committed are awful. They have hurt us. They have hurt other people. They've broken hearts and left scars. And yet you're willing to forgive us if we'll sincerely call on you. Help us to know, dear God, that that forgiveness is through the shed blood of Christ. And that he has died that we might live. He has died that we might have all of our sins washed away. And that in this moment, there's a new beginning for us. Help us to surrender, Lord. And let Jesus be the Lord of our life. Father, I thank you that in a recent judgment of a jury this past evening, that there were not riots in South Florida. And I pray, dear God, that we might all learn a lesson in this country that when things don't go the way we particularly want, we still should love and care for other people. That it's not all about us. And that you're a God who superintends everything that takes place. And that you understand how things work out best, and particularly for those of us who are called by your name, You promise that all things are going to work out for good. 
Help us to remember that, Lord, as we face the challenges of life. Help us to remember that when things don't go the way we want them to go. At this very moment, Father, there are men and women and children all across our land who have loved ones who are in the military forces, who are separated both day and night, who at best can see electronically a picture of their loved one while they talk to them in a distant land. We ask your blessing on those in our military and on their loved ones. We ask your blessing on all those who serve to protect us and to provide for us and to help us. And Father, that covers a multitude of people. And we pray for them, not that they would just do the service, but that it would be a thing of the heart and that they would know that they're serving you. I pray for your church in this country, Lord. There's all kind of evidence that so many of your churches have turned from the full truth of the Bible, and we pray for spiritual renewal in those that call themselves the Church of Jesus Christ. And pray for the ministers and for the lay leaders and for the congregations that we might have revival in our churches, that we might have revival in our land. And Father, as we make that request, might we believe in our heart of hearts that if that's something you will for us, that it will happen, that you do answer prayers. I thank you for our church, Father. I thank you for the love that's in this place, and I thank you for the opportunity you give us to extend that love to other people. I pray you'd help us to hold dear the essentials of the gospel and to live our lives with integrity, that we might be an example to other people and in turn have an opportunity to tell other people about your forgiveness and your love and about Jesus, your Son. Father, thank you for letting us come together today. And as we go through our passage that we're going to study and as we have communion, I pray that your Holy Spirit would engage us. And I ask for your blessing. In Jesus' name, amen. Our passage this morning comes from Acts, the 12th chapter. From Acts, the 12th chapter, and we're going to look at the 13th through the 17th verses. Acts, the 12th chapter. We're going to start with the 13th verse. Some of you will remember that a couple of weeks ago we did a two-part series on prayer on personal prayer and on corporate prayer. And I want to come back to that theme this morning, and and I want to approach it a little differently. I want to talk this morning about prayers that we really don't expect God to answer. All of us pray those kind of prayers. We do it for a variety of reasons, but we do it. So what I'd like us to do is to focus on that, and there's a wonderful biblical example of that where the church and the church leaders didn't expect God to answer a prayer that they had fervently prayed. And I want you to see how that works out. So we're going to be looking at Acts, the 12th chapter, 
Actually, I'll start with the 12th verse in the introduction, and then we'll study through the 17th. Everybody have their place? Let's pray. Father, I pray you'd now open your word for us. Very intentionally, you embedded it in the hearts and minds of those who've gone before us. And they've had it transcribed and had it written for us that we might now benefit from it. And you tell us, Lord, it's not just dead words on a page, but it's alive and active and sharper than a two-edged sword. And I pray it might now pierce all of us. Help us to hear you, Lord, and to know that you're speaking to us. And help us take it home with us and live it out, for I ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Some years ago, there was a ruling elder in a church in Atlanta. A young, not so young, seminarian was working in the church where he was a ruling elder, and and he began to have some problems. I don't know if any of you can identify with, with this, but he started bumping into things. Any of you do that? He'd bump into door jams, and he'd bump into tables, and he was kind of not real steady on his feet. And after it got rather exasperating for him, he went to a doctor, and the doctor ran some tests, and the doctor gave him the bad news that he had a brain tumor and that it was going to get worse and worse and ultimately take his life. And he came back to his church, to the staff of that church, and to the elders and deacons, and, and he asked them to pray. And the whole church fervently prayed for this beloved elder. The night before surgery, he was in a hospital in Atlanta, and that seminarian while it wasn't his responsibility, he was a part-time employee of the church, really cared for that man, and that seminarian went to the hospital. A seminarian didn't know anything about pastoral calls. He didn't know what was appropriate. He hadn't been through any training. He just went because he cared about the man, and when he walked in, he expected, I guess, the man to be laying there still, but the man wasn't. The man was sitting up in his bed, Upright, had his legs folded, and he was holding court. That's my way of describing it. He had about four nurses in there, and he was talking to them. He had one doctor in there and a couple of members of the family. And he was explaining to them that he and others had been praying and that he was convicted that God had healed him. I don't know at that point that that seminarian had thought through any of the healing process by prayer. So he was getting an experience and education that night. And the man went on to say that he was sure the tumor was gone in his head. And then as he gave that testimony, and that's what people in the church had been praying for, as he gave that testimony, The seminarian, being the practical person he was, said, well, why don't you tell the doctors tonight? And he said, because they probably wouldn't believe me. So I'm going to go through the whole process tomorrow. And the seminarian said, you mean you're going to have the surgery? He said, if that's what they want to do, because when they open my head up, there's not going to be a tumor there. You all still with me? Seminarian looked at him, and they'd already shaved his head, and they had that little 
purple markings all over his head, where they were going to go and what they were going to take out. And next morning, the seminarian got up real early, went back to the hospital, was there and watched them roll that ruling elder down the hall. When they got him down the hall, they ran some x-rays again just before surgery, and then they rolled him back down the hall and put him back in his bed. And the surgeon walked in and said, you know, we must have some sort of a malfunction with our equipment because we don't see the tumor any longer. So we're going to get together and we're going to check our equipment out and see what's going on. And he said, we're also going to look at our whole diagnostic process because maybe we've missed something in the diagnosis and thought there was something there and there's not. The man got out of the hospital, went back to the real estate company that he owned, went back to his church, and the tumor on the right side of his brain was gone. Precisely what he and so many other people had prayed for. I don't know if anybody, maybe some, had thought that prayer would ever be answered. Unexpected answer to prayer. You ever pray something and and just pray it really fervently and sincerely and have no idea that God would ever do it? I think that happens more often than we'd care to admit. The passage I have today is a great example of that. And I want you to follow along as I read, starting with... I'm going to go back and start with the 12th verse of the 12th chapter. It says, And when he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, who was also called Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. When he knocked... At the door of the gate, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. When she recognized Peter's voice because of her joy, she didn't open the gate, but ran in and announced that Peter was standing in front of the gate. They said to her, you're out of your mind. Can't you just hear yourself saying that? You're out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so, and they kept saying, it's his angel. But Peter continued knocking, and when they had opened the door, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had led him out of the prison. And he said, Report these things to James and the brethren. Then he left and went to another place. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. You remember how we got to this point from two weeks ago? Peter, the leader of the church in Jerusalem, had become the object of a lot of anger on the part of King Herod. Herod had already killed James, the brother of John, and now he has Peter arrested and it's his intention to have him publicly executed. He wants to be rid of the church that you and I are now a part of. Puts him in prison, and the reason he puts him in prison is because it's the Passover season. And while the Jews want to see Peter gone, they don't want to break their tradition, and they don't want to execute someone during Passover. So the king, out of deference to them, puts Peter in jail. 
the night before Passover ends, in the dark of night, with Peter chained, with Peter tied to the ground, with a guard on each side of him, an angel comes and awakens Peter. The chains fall off. The angel leads him out of the prison. The prison guards don't wake up and do anything about it. The guards, the two that are guarding the outside, they don't see Peter and the angel. The gate opens so they can go out, and they get into the street, and when they get into the street, the angel disappears. Now, if I were Peter, I probably would have wanted to hold on to that angel, wouldn't you? But the angel disappears, so Peter goes right straight to where the church has gathered. He goes to John Mark's mama's house, Mary's home. And when he gets to her home, he knocks on the gate. He wants to get in off the street. Ever think about Mary? You know, we have names that just pop up in Scripture, and and God has a reason for telling us it's Mary, John, Mark's mama. We know a couple of things about Mary. We know, number one, that she was probably wealthy. She lived in a gated home. And in Jerusalem, that meant she had a home with a courtyard and then a gate. And the gate wasn't just a gate. It was a solid wall with a solid gate in the wall. We also know she was a Christian because she allowed the church to come and worship her in her home. We also know that she was a very brave lady. Jesus, her Messiah, had been crucified. The church was being persecuted. Stephen had been stoned to death. James had been killed with the sword. Peter had been arrested. And she was willing to let the church that was so persecuted come together in her home, knowing that the Romans and the Jews would know that she was harboring the church. Would you do that? Would you even let folks know you're a Christian because you know they'll talk about you? I keep thinking back about what we were told, that we're to love the Lord our God with all of our heart and all of our mind and all of our strength, and that we are to talk about him in our home and we're to talk about him outside of our home. And we're to post on the doorpost of our home where everybody who's walking by can tell his word so that people will know we belong to him. If you're trying to be politically correct and not talk about God and not talk about Jesus in public, can I give you some pastoral advice? Quit it. Just plain quit it. That's not biblical. What we are to do is to wear it on our foreheads so that everyone will see it. We're to be like Mary. And we're to trust God will take care of us. And we're to walk the walk on a daily basis, not in an arrogant way, but with assurance. 
And as a people responding to the grace of God, saying, Lord, I know you love me, and now I'm going to let other people know. Can you see yourself doing that more and more? That's who the church is, folks. That's what we're supposed to be doing. If you look on at the passage, we also get a glimpse of what's going on with Rhoda. She's a servant. She goes to that front gate when she hears somebody knocking. She can't see through the gate. Scripture says she hears the voice of Peter, and she recognizes him by his voice. Now, she knows the people in the church are praying for him. She knows he's supposed to be in jail, and now suddenly he's outside the gate knocking to come in. So what does she do? Does she open the gate? No. She's so taken back by what's happening, she turns around and runs back into the house and leaves Peter standing outside. If you believe something's going to happen, are you totally shocked when it happens? If you pray and ask God to do something, when he answers your prayer, do you say, wow, I can't believe he did that? That's what Rhoda did. She was overwhelmed. If you look down in the 15th and 16th verses, you see how that unexpected prayer works out. She runs in and she tells folks who are in there praying, the church, and what is their response? They say to her, you're out of your mind. They have no accommodation in their thinking for an answer to the prayer that they've been praying so fervently. I wonder why that is. I wonder why we do that. Do we pray just because it's a rote thing that we're supposed to do? If so, that's not the purpose of prayer. The purpose of prayer is for us to be of one mind with God. It's not for us to change his mind. It's for us to get in tune and understand what he's doing so we can respond appropriately in our life and so we give praise to him for what he's doing. So they say to her, that's not possible. Peter's in jail. In essence, that's what they're saying. He couldn't possibly have gotten out of jail. He can't be standing in the street. She said, oh, yes, he is. I heard his voice. And they say, well, you know, that's probably his angel. Now, the Jews, and I think you can make a pretty good argument in Scripture, believe in guardian angels. An angel that God has come alongside you and minister for you and with you. The Jews went a step further in their tradition, and I think it's unbiblical, and they taught that that guardian angel could physically take your place and appear on your behalf. That's not a biblical concept that I can find. But they believe that. So they're able to say to Rhoda, you know, Rhoda, that's probably his angel at the door, meaning taking his place, he's still back in jail. Isn't that an interesting explanation? You know, when you don't expect something to happen, and it happens, what we human beings do, and no animal can do this except us, we start trying to figure it out. We start trying to explain it through some human mechanism so that we can be at peace with what's going on. 
Peter was standing physically at the gate. God had answered their prayer. Miraculously, he had done exactly what they had asked. I've got a theory. See if you all abide by this theory. In talking to missionaries, I have found that overseas missionaries, particularly those in remote areas that aren't exposed to a lot of our sophistication, I'm not suggesting our sophistication is necessarily good, but who aren't exposed to it, they have a little different experience spiritually. They see things and understand things that oftentimes we don't. We're so busy trying to explain them away or explain how they happen that oftentimes we miss the whole point of what God's doing. The Titanic sails from England. A ship has sailed from New York. That ship goes to England. The people get off. They get on another ship, a man and a woman, a daughter and a son. They sail down the coast of Europe, down the coast of Africa, and they turn into the Congo River in what used to be called the Belgian Congo. They change ships and go up the river. They get to the falls, they change ships again and get on a little steamer and go on up the river. And they stop on the side of the river and there are two huts that were built by former missionaries who had been killed by the locals. And this man, who's a medical doctor, gets out of the little steamer along with his wife and two children and he sets up medical practice. And he starts caring for the locals. That gets the attention of some of the people who don't want him there. And ultimately, one day, a group of men appear who have every intention of killing that missionary and his wife and kids. The missionary had already made a decision not to take a weapon with him. So he walks out into the middle of a clearing, and he's standing there with his wife and his son Bill and his daughter Margaret, who are little children at that time. And there's a 180 circle of these people who have come from the local tribes who are going to kill them, the rivers behind him. As they start to approach with their weapons, they stop. And then they start to withdraw until finally they just fade back into the forest. And they don't hurt the missionary, Hezekiah Washburn, or his wife or the two kids. Some years later, Hezekiah Washburn is talking to the chief of that particular local group who has now become a Christian under Hezekiah's ministry. And he said to him, why didn't you all kill us that day? Isn't that a good question? You know the answer? The chief said, well, we were going to. We'd already made that decision. We had you boxed in. You couldn't get away with the river to your back. We had you outnumbered. We had weapons. You didn't seem to have weapons. But all of a sudden, all these guys in white started coming out of your two huts. And they just come coming out and coming out and coming out until there were more of them than us. And he said, we weren't going to attack a superior force. He said, so we started backing up toward the woods, and they just kept coming out and coming out. that possible see in our culture we want to say well what's that all about 
we want to try to explain it. You know, if the sun were just right and the glare were right and the reflection off the water, maybe they thought they saw something. That's how we operate. Margaret said, no, mom and dad didn't see the angels. But I was there and I saw them retreat. And dad came back home years later and explained that God had sent his angels and we believed it. Isn't that a stretch for us? I believe that. I believe it. I read the book that Hezekiah wrote. I talked to Margaret and I talked to Bill. I believe it. Unexpected answers to prayer. That's what that knocking was all about. If you look down at verse 17, you'll see an interesting thing. You see Peter's instructions. The first thing he says is, I want you to be quiet. He gives a hand signal to say, stop talking. Now, why did he do that? Was he afraid that they discovered he was no longer in prison and they were looking for him? That's a possibility. Did he say, shh, because he wanted to protect the church and didn't want the people in the church to get hurt, so he wanted them not to draw attention? That's a possibility. Was it that he had one of those relapses? Where God had worked in his life, God had exposed himself and demonstrated his power, and Peter's forgetting all that, and just wants to get in off the street. That's a possibility, too. You know what happens to us? This is not an indictment. It's just a simple truth. God works in your life, and he works in my life, and he works things out for us. And if we take the time, by his grace, we can say, well, that was God, and he did that. And the next day, we can't operate off that faith. The next day, we become afraid of circumstances again, forgetting all about that. We have these spiritual relapses. And you would think after a while we would learn and we would build up in our faith to where we would become stronger and stronger in our faith. Unfortunately, that doesn't happen all the time. But I think that's a potential for us if we want to see that happen. Another amazing thing happens. And when you read it, it doesn't look very significant. Peter says to them, I want you to go and I want you to tell who? I want you to tell James, the brother of Jesus, what's taken place, how I was freed. And I want you to tell the brethren, the leaders of the church, and the other followers. Now, again, that doesn't sound very significant, but stop and think about James for a minute. The whole time that Jesus was involved in his ministry, up and including his crucifixion, his brother James did not believe. He was not counted as a believer. And don't you think Jesus didn't know that? And don't you think the leaders of the church didn't know that? Here's his closest of kin, and he doesn't believe what the leaders of the church believed. And I am sure there was some conversation about that. Don't you think so? That's how we humans operate. And now Peter is saying, I want you to go to James 
and I want you to tell him what's happened. You know what's happened to James? He has not only become a believer post-crucifixion, he's now become the leader of the church. He has already taken Peter's position. And what we're reading in a few words is a changing of the guard. Peter is going to leave, and we're not going to hear any more about him in Scripture. And James is going to take his place as the leader of the church. I sat and I thought about that reality, about how in every church and in every part of Christianity, we have a changing of the guard that's constantly going on. And healthy churches allow that to happen while maintaining spiritual standards which means bringing new people on board in roles of leadership and discerning their gifts and encouraging them and discipling them so they can be the next generation to lead the church. And when a church doesn't do that, the church isn't healthy. I imagine that when the brethren saw James, the brother of Jesus, come to faith, they were excited. And then when he started rising in prominence, I imagine there was a little questioning about that and some, maybe some resistance. But it's an accomplished fact. He became the leader of the church. And you and I need to be involved in discipling one another that we might see people who have come a long way spiritually be raised up to help lead our church. Unexpected prayer. I think they prayed for James, and he became a believer, and he became a leader of the church. What dare you pray about? What might you be courageous enough to ask God to do? Remember the balance from a couple of weeks ago. You and I are supposed to ask him. We're to bear our heart and say, Lord, here's my agenda. I got it all figured out now. Here's how it's supposed to work. And what I really want you to do is come along and do what I ask, Lord. And then the balance. But thy will be done. And there's your theological balance. So you and I are to ask that which you might normally not expect to have happen. And if God wants it to happen, it will happen. Amen? Golly, can we live that? Can we have that kind of faith? To live that daily? What a difference. What a difference in our individual lives and our corporate life. Live expecting the unexpected. And trust God will do what's best. Let's pray together. Father, you're a much bigger God than most of us acknowledge. Most of us try to get you to fit into our box, Lord, and you're trying to get us to fit into your box. And it's a big box, Lord. I pray for us. I pray that we might become the people you want us to become. That individually we might break some new ground spiritually and believe the unbelievable and trust you and know that you're going to work it out right. 
Father, we're about to come to your table, and this is another one of the miracles in our faith. How Jesus would come, being you with us, and how he would live and die for us. And that he's alive today, raised from the dead, sitting at your right hand. And that you have now called us to partake of a sacrament to remember what he has already done and what he has secured permanently for sure for us, our eternal life. Please, Lord, set these elements aside for a holy use and bless our time around this table. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I love the words that come with this event. The Lord says to us in Scripture, Beloved in the Lord, hear what gracious words our Savior Christ saith unto all who truly turn unto him. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I will give you rest upon your very soul. Isn't that a beautiful promise that he gives us? He said, I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls. I am the bread of life, and he that cometh to me shall never hunger, and he that believeth on me shall never thirst. Him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. Folks, if somebody deserves to get cast out, we're going to be making our way to the head of the line, all of us. But that's not how this works. By grace we are saved, not by works. And this is a reminder of that grace. Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. A promise from God. Hymn number 460, the first and second verses. 460. Let's stand and sing together.